Monday, tomorrow, is Memorial Day. It, by definition, is a day in which we are called to remember, right? Throughout Scripture, there are all kinds of memorials given, charges to remember. It's an amazing word study. If you have uh, some time to put in a good study in your life, just go online, go to a Bible app, and you just, just search the word remember or remembrance and see all the charges and all the things that are given throughout the Bible, all the signs and all of the processes, all of the ordinances that we see that are given to us and said so that you will remember. There are simple things like a rainbow that was given so that we would remember a covenant God made with every living creature. There is the Sabbath, the seventh day, a day of rest that is given that we would remember the holiness of God in creation and that we would rest in Him, understanding that He is ultimately in control, that he is not only creator, but also sustainer as well. There is signs like circumcision, a a very intimate thing given to the people of God so that everyone around and they would know that they are different. It was something to remember that they belonged to God, that they were a covenant people. As we get into the New Testament, we see things like baptism that stands as a sign so that every time there is a testimony given of someone like we saw this morning where the old self is buried and a new self is risen, it would cause us to remember that Christ had to die in our place and that he rose again, and that is the key to new life. When we take the Lord's Supper, we do so in remembrance These are things given to us so that we would remember. I think this morning, as we look at our text, we are in a, what I want to say is really kind of a downward slope in kind of the historical narrative of Israel. If you are following along in your reading, I want to go ahead and tell you, it begins to get a little sad. It becomes a little depressing. Israel will continue to turn their eyes, uh, rebel, and compromise over the next few months in our reading. It will be a sad time. There is not quite the fun and excitement conquering that is in the book of Joshua. Instead, it is much more um, a rebellion and really a correction given. Prophets will preach repentance again and again, and Israel will not repent. It will be a time in which they will fall captive to other nations, and we're beginning to read some of that as David the king of Israel, his family is really practically falling apart. The people of Israel are beginning to take part in these small rebellions and they're beginning to distance themselves. And in our text today, we will see really some defiance, a delivery, and the dwelling of God. And I'll be honest with you, it is a descriptive text. There is very little in this text that is prescriptive to our lives, that is speaks right out of this particular chapter and says, thou shalt do this. It, it, it's a story. It's, 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 it's a foundation to a better understanding of God's revelation yet to be revealed. And so as we walk through it, I, want, I just kind of want you to see that really what I think will happen for us this morning is that we will be called to remember. 
we'll be called to remember some major things that will help even formulate in our mind a better understanding of what is yet to come in our story. And so if you'll turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. We're going to use the, uh, the Chronicles account. We're also, if you want to follow along, you're in 2 Sam- yeah, Samuel chapter 24 is the same account. So they almost go verse by verse in these uh, two different accounts. We're going to use the one in First uh, Chronicles this morning. Verse 1 says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Now one of the first things I just want to kind of just throw out there is when you look at these two accounts, the one in Second Samuel and the one in First Chronicles, there are going to be some discrepancies. We won't spend a lot of time talking about them, but there's three that we might mention and spend just a little bit of time talking about. One is here in the very first verse. If you read from 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David and said to them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. And so if you look at Chronicles, Chronicles says Satan. If you look at 2 Samuel, it says God. And that's where some of those people go, see, that Bible is contradicting itself. What we need to understand is, much like in the book of Job, all things fall under the sovereignty and the control of God, even Satan himself. Even the demonic influence in our world is limited to what God will allow and, watch this, sovereignly pushes them to do. And so we see here a work in which God is angry. He's angry with Israel, with their rebellion. And Satan goes to tempt and incite David. Verse 2 from 1 Chronicles. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report, that I may know the number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my Lord the King, all of them my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all of Israel and came back to Jerusalem. So if you read through the next few verses, it takes almost a year. As Joab and his men, it's a little less than ten months, travel around the whole nation counting the men of Israel, those who could fight, those who could be classified as an army, those that could rise up behind David and go to war, those that would somewhat show a bit of self-sufficiency, those that would show security and protection. And so he comes back and he gives the count, and there again, this is the second time we see a discrepancy in the Second Samuel and the First Chronicles. We have two different counts, a different count given in each. And the only thing I want to say here, and to let you see about these two different counts, there's really no good answer for the discrepancy. discrepancy. 
the, there's all kinds of theories about why it's one and the other and, and, and less than the other. The thing that we do know is that Joab, when he goes and counts, he leaves out the Benjamites, he leaves out the Levites. He does not think this is a good thing. He doesn't think it's a God-honoring thing. And so what I'm saying is we know that he is omitting certain parts, certain tribes. He is categorizing the people differently throughout these, these, these reports because it's something he's not comfortable with. And I think somewhere in there is how we get our discrepancies, but I want you to know that it's there. We'll talk more about it a little bit later. And so I want to back up. The only reason given for this census that is taken is because David wants to know how many men are in Israel. That's all that's said about the reason that's there. And so Joab comes back and says basically, listen, what does it matter? I mean, really, what does it matter? I mean, one, however many there are, they're all yours and they'll all fight for you. And two, beyond that, is not God our authority and our power? Would it really matter if we had 100 men or if we had 100 million men? As long as God is with us, what on earth would it matter? And if you just read the report in, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 23 about David's mighty men, some of those men did some serious Rambo kind of stuff. So if anybody should have confidence in God fighting through one man or ten men or a hundred men or whatever number of men that needs to be and understand that their power is within the Lord, not within what they seemingly control, it should be David. And so Joab makes this plea back and he says, listen, think about your power source. Think about where ultimate authority comes from. And again, David's word as king prevailed against Joab. A few things we're going to point out as we walk through things I'd like for us to remember. Remember as we come into Memorial Day. The first thing is independence is not a virtue. Independence is not a virtue. That's really hard for us today who live in America in a Western society because we are taught pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work really hard, and make yourself a good life. And while there are principles of that that are absolutely true, I want you to understand that independence is not a virtue we read well in Scripture. Hard work, yes. Independence, no. God asks us to recognize a complete dependence on Him as the authority in our life. To recognize him not as just one who created us and left us to be, but to recognize him also as the sustainer that every breath we take is an orchestrated breath given to us by God. That every good thing we have in our life comes directly from him. God rewards dependence and our dependence, our humble dependence is a form of worship and it's how we should worship. Not pretending to bring anything, but coming before God broken, knowing we have nothing to offer. When we tithe, when we give, understand that this is a similar example. It's a similar parallel. When we give back 
to the Lord. We understand whether we give that starting point of a 10% or we're giving over and above to something like our debt retirement here at our church or to some mission organization out there. When we give to the Lord, watch what we're doing. Does he need our money? No. Then why would God ask us to tithe? Why would he ask us to give? It's a memorial. It's a way that we would remember that he is ultimately the provider. It's an act of worship. That's why we call it that. Because as we recognize we really have nothing, and the illusion of our bank account, the illusion of our 401K is really nothing, that ultimately it is the Lord our God who is the sustainer of our life. It's a memorial to us. That's why we get to do those things. We are called to humbly rest in the sovereignty of God. One of the core practices we hold up here at Tri-Cities Baptist Church is the term abide. And when we talk about resting in our position in Christ, what that means is for those of us who have placed saving faith in Jesus, we have an amazing peace that goes beyond the circumstances of the day because we get to rest in Christ. We rest in the sovereignty of God and His control over our life and His love for us and His provision for us. It is the opposite of pride. It is the opposite of insecurity. It is a contentment. Paul talks about it at great length throughout the New Testament. He writes about contentment in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Philippians 4. In almost all of his letters, Paul is saying, I have learned the secret to be content. What is the secret? To rest in the sustaining authority of God in his life. David did not rest. David, he, he wanted to know, he wanted to control. And don't, don't look at me like you don't get that. I see you. Some of you are type A control freaks like me, right? Yeah, some, just nod silently. I won't point you out. But I know some of you are, and we, we want to control it. We want to be able to say, no, we've got it under control. And so we try. Listen to this statement. The moment you begin contemplating what you can do apart from God, you have disconnected from the power to do. The moment you begin to contemplate what you can do apart from God, you've disconnected from the very power source to do. When we hope in anything other than God, that is when we sin. This is what David is doing. And so we continue reading in verse 7. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly, and that I have done this thing. But now, please, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will. Either three years of famine, or three months of devastation by your foes, while the sword of your enemies overtake you or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide 
would answer, I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. The census displeased God. It, one, ignored his sovereignty, and two, it, in a very real way, it perverted and displaced worship. It distanced him, it distanced Israel, it distanced David from a reliance on God. And this very thing displeased God. And so God comes to David and he gives David three options. Three years of famine, three months of devastation at the hand of your enemy, or three days of the sword of God and plague. This is where you'll see the third discrepancy if you have a King James Version Bible. If you have a King James Version Bible, and I'm going to chase this rabbit for a minute, and it's going to be personal. I, I grew up in this area. I, I was one of those people. We don't talk much about this uh, at church, and I wish we would talk more about it and teach our people more. We don't talk a lot about translations of Bibles and all those kinds of things. I grew up, and I believed in probably until the time I was about 17, 18 years old, that there was one Bible, and it was just the King James Version Bible. And it wasn't until I stumbled across this verse and another one like it that I began to rethink my stance. If you have a King James Version, you'll see that your three years is actually seven years in the Second Samuel 24. Now, it's still three years in the First Chronicles account. They have two different accounts. The King James Version is translated on top of itself again and again and again. What I want you to know about this is I don't think in any of these discrepancies it should cause us for one moment to question the inerrancy of the revelation of God and it being passed on to us. And for one moment, I don't think it should cause us to question the inspiration of Scripture. But I would challenge you to understand the revelation of God and how it's translated. Because if I looked within Revelation itself, and so I see one specific number given in one account, one specific number given in another account, with no reason for that discrepancy but to report the very Word of God, it might make me think about how I view those translations. That was an important thing for me. And it helped me understand how the Word of God is revealed and how it's passed down from generation to generation. And my only point in stopping to say this is to you, Rather, if you're here and you haven't thought much about that, and I didn't as a child, I just kind of took what I was brought up in, I would challenge you to really study God's Word. To understand how it was preserved and how it is translated. But there is a discrepancy there. Now, if you're David and you're given the choice of these three things, I want you to know that's hard. If, if my wife can't make a decision about what to eat, Right? This is true. We argue, where do you want to eat? I don't know. Where do you want to go? I don't know. I mean, it is an hour-long decision to figure out where to eat. Can you imagine this decision? Imagine for a moment just being David and having to make this decision. Thousands of the people you lead, thousands of your brothers and sisters are going to die. And God looks at you and says, you choose how. It was your sin, you choose how. 
We need to understand why David cries out and says, I am in great distress. This is not a simple decision. This is so hard. And so we continue to read on into verse 14 after David chooses to place his faith in God who is merciful. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But his, he was about to destroy it. The Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave the command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please, let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people. In less than three days, after David has made his choice, God has killed 70,000 men in Israel. And David looks out and sees. Guys, when we use the word terrifying, I think sometimes we, we, we over-exaggerate terrifying. Let me tell you, this would be terrifying. David looks out and sees the angel of the Lord standing somewhere between ground and sky with a sword drawn over Jerusalem. Yeah, I don't know. I'm pretty scared. It says the next thing that he and the elders got in sackcloth and began to pray. I want to tell you, as one of your elders here at this local body, I'm praying, crying, and probably doing a lot of other things. I am terrified. They fall on their knees before God. They are very apparent. It is very apparent to them that they are confronted with the great consequence of their sin. They see a glimpse of God's wrath against them. It was confronted. It was right there in front of them. 70,000 men dead. An angel of the Lord sore and drawn over Jerusalem. One of my favorite preachers is Charles Spurgeon. He has uh, a sermon through this text, and I will tell you it is much better Uh, I'm sure, than the one I am delivering today. It is one of my favorite Spurgeon sermons. I want to read you a quote from that sermon that was preached 130 years ago. In this section, at this point, he looked out to the church and he said, Oh, sirs, the problem with many of you is that you have never beheld sin in its consequences, sin in its guilt, sin in its doom, God is angry with the sinner every day. Men do not fly to God till fear puts wings on their feet. 
Take away the dread of wrath to come, and you have removed the great impulse which makes men seek mercy. Men will not meet God until they see the angel with the drawn sword. David is confronted in that very moment with the wrath of God, the consequence of sin, and his response is one that models repentance. He puts on sackcloth, which is a way of visually showing that he has nothing to offer. Nothing. He has nothing to offer. He goes to God with nothing. He doesn't bring a million fighting men. He goes to God with nothing. And he personalizes the repentance. He says, I gave the order. I sinned. I did great evil. But David's repentance is not sufficient. It's not sufficient. The sword is still drawn when David and the elders finish praying. Verse 18, Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and he saw the angel. And his four sons who were with him hid themselves. Terrifying. And David came to Ornan. And Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face on the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build an altar. Build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price, David says, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, no, no, just take it and let my lord, the king, do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sleds for the wood, and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. Ornan seeing the penalty Seeing the wrath of God is in that moment, he realized you can have everything. You can have everything. But King David said in order, no, but I will buy them for the full price. For I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by the weight for the site. And David built there an altar to the Lord. And he presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven. Fire rained down from heaven, consumed the offering. Fire from heaven upon the, burnt, upon the altar of the burnt offering. Then, listen, then, after the offerings... Then the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back in its sheath. The sword did not go back into its sheath, listen, until a ransom was paid. Until a ransom was paid, that sword does not go back into its sheath. There needed to be atonement. Next thing I want us to remember, our lives, our lives require a ransom. Our lives require a ransom. David thought this sin was just on him, but the truth is all of Israel had sinned with him. If you go back to Exodus chapter 30, beginning of verse 11, I want you to see the context for a census, a nationwide census. God had spoke into the law and given them direction for what they should do. Verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, 
when you take a census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life. Did you hear that? Each shall give a ransom for what? What are they, what are they giving a ransom for? Their life. They are offering a bribe for their very life. Their life is not even their own. They shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the sentence, in the census for 20 years upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. Listen to verse 16. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and you shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting. Here it is. That it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord. Remembrance of what? So as to make atonement for their lives, they were to give a bribe in that moment as a remembrance that their life is frankly cursed under sin and that they are slaves to sin. And the only way that they will ever get out of that ultimately is through a ransom. And all the way back then, there is this call to remember. The good news for us, listen, by the way, we're the same people. The good news for us, the thing that we should remember is Jesus has paid a ransom. Jesus has paid a ransom. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Listen, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Verse 7, by the way, cohort, if you're still in the room here, verse 7. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. Teacher, the Gentiles, and the faith and the truth. For this, to proclaim that Jesus is the ransom, it's an amazing thing that we're reading as we're here. I want to give you one other parallel that you get to see in remembrance. Last week we took the Lord's Supper. Uh, the uh, account in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is the account we often use to talk about that. It walks through the bread, it walks through the juice, and it does so and it says, take this in remembrance of me, quoting Jesus in the upper room. I want to read to you... And think about the parallels as I read this to you. After you drink it in remembrance of me, verse 26, chapter 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord is an unworthy manner. Whoever eats or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, 
then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now listen to verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. God takes his remembrance serious, even today, even in our New Testament church. I want you to understand these aren't just Old Testament things that are way back there. We just really probably don't spiritually discern them as much. Back to the core point of what we're reading here in 1 Chronicles. The thing I want you to remember as we close is how we meet with God. How we meet with God and how he dwells among us and in us. David's meeting with God happens of all places on a threshing floor. All places it happens on a threshing floor. One more quote from Spurgeon in that sermon that sticks out. Meeting God on a threshing floor? Why not? It may be a thousand times more sacred than many a church altar. For there, on the threshing floor... Simple minds are likely to pay their homage in hearty truthfulness, while in the other, the artificialness of the place may foster formality. God has met with many a man in a dungeon, in a cave, in a well's belly. When you have displayed all your skill in architecture, can you secure a more divine presence than the disciples had in the upper room? Can you get as much of it even. A tasteful building may be a way of showing your pious regard for the Lord. And so far, it may be justifiable and acceptable. But take care that you do not regard it as essential or even important, or you will make an idol of it. If the church or chapel is esteemed for its form or tastefulness, it will become a mere exhibition of skill and industry and be no more sacred than the house of a greedy merchant. What was Spurgeon's point? The buildings, the programs, the tools, all those things, they are just that. They're just tools. All they do is set up for us an opportunity to meet with God. And I want you to see the progression as we walk through Scripture David goes on, you turn the page into chapter 22, and one of the themes that we'll read over the next couple of months is the theme of the temple. And in chapter 22, verse 1, David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here an altar of burnt offering for Israel. The temple would be built on this place. This would become the very altar This is where Solomon is going to build that temple. This is where the sacrifices for atonement will be paid for the nation of Israel. You say, well, what does a temple have to do with us today? I want you to understand what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? I'm going to ask the band to come up at this time as we prepare to close and what I'm going to charge you to do is to remember something for those of you who are in Christ Jesus for those of you who have placed saving faith
You don't have to go to a building to meet with God. You don't ever have to worry if he's there. And you don't worry about a sword over your head. You should not stand in guilt and shame. And you should not stand in arrogance as if you did something to remove it. But instead, with great contentment and satisfaction, with your heart crying out, it is well with my soul, you should acknowledge that the Holy Spirit now indwells you. That what once resided in a building at a place on holy ground, God has now made His temple, not in that building, but in your heart. And as we come together on a Sunday morning like this, or as we go to our work, we go in a heart of worship. i got one more verse I want to read to you. It's from the end of your Bible in Revelations chapter 21, verse 22. It's where I'll start. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There is something you should remember. Your life requires a ransom. And Jesus has paid your ransom. It can be yours. That can be your city for eternity. That can be your home. The only thing that stands between you and eternity with God is saving faith. That He loved you so much, a sinner, with a sword of destruction over your head, that He would send sacrifice to atone for your sin that you might be reconciled into the family of God this morning I pray that if you've never placed saving faith in Jesus today would be the day you would claim your ransom and for those of you that have I pray that you would worship remembering what brought you here today would you stand Would you make this time a time of prayer, a time of response, a time of remembrance? And would we worship together with one voice before our Lord, our God?